0: Welcome to this episode of Horrific History and Hauntings. I'm Beth.
1: And I'm Ramey. We're your hosts, here to talk about the stories that the history books ignore.
0: From horrific epidemics and ghostly hauntings to the catastrophes and tragic events that have sickened humanity.
1: Beth, what are we talking about?
0: We are going to discuss Francis Tugun Crawley. If you all listened to the Last Words episode, then I happened to say what they thought was his last words and was looking into his story then and thought I would want to do an episode on it. Okay.
1: I guess we are doing that.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I got this information in this episode from the book Shootout on the Upper West Side, The True Story of Francis 2 and Crawley by Rich Gold. It is a great book with a ton of information and plenty of great pictures in it. So I suggest getting this book. We have an Amazon affiliate link you can click on in the description if you would like to read it or even if you just would like to see the pictures in it. The paperback is $13.50 at the time we are recording and it is also on Kindle Unlimited. Also. This is probably going to be a two-part episode.
1: Yeah, there's going to be another one in between these two. Yeah.
0: Crawley's birth, younger years, and family. Crawley was thought to be born on October 31st, 1912, but there are conflicting reports about his birth date. St. John's home records indicate his birth date was October 3rd, 1911, and that he was born in Brooklyn, New York.
1: That's quite a difference.
0: Yes, it is. The book A Gun in His Hand by Victor Rawson states that Francis Crawley's mother is Dora Diets.
1: That sounds like a fad diet.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's with a Z at the end, too, not an S.
1: A real hip fad diet.
0: Born, she was born in Australia, and it's said that she came to the United States not long after giving birth to Francis. She worked as a house servant and was said to have been seduced by a New York police officer named John Flood, who is... Also thought to be Crawford's father.
1: That sounds like it's be one of the names you get on Game of Thrones.
0: <laughs> he also has a few other names, not the father, Francis. St. John's Home's records indicate September eighth, nineteen sixteen, was the date Francis Diets was admitted to the home. Admission reports read: "Abandoned baby, supposed father denies paternity of child."
1: That'd be easily settled these days.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Anna Crawley ran a foster home in about 1915. This is when she started to care for or she adopted Francis Crawley. He was thought to be about three years old at the time and he was also called John F. Flood while living there. Anna, also called Annie sometimes, Crawley was born in March 1873 in England. She came to the United States in 1889. Anna's husband at the time, which was like the adoptive father of Francis, was Thomas Crawley. He was born January 1870 in England, and he came to the U.S. in 1884. He was also a bricklayer.
1: His stepdad.
0: Is that step? If you're adopted, it's step?
1: If he adopted him, no. But if your mama got married to him, then he's a stepdad unless he adopts you.
0: See, when it goes into talking about Anna's actual son, they kept calling him the stepbrother of Francis. But I was like, that doesn't sound right because he was adopted. It wouldn't be a stepbrother, would it? I don't know how that works. I don't know either, yeah. Anna and Thomas were married in around 1891, but in 1897, Anna was listed as divorced and was working as a washerwoman. At this time, 12-year-old John Crawley, Anna's only son by birth, was listed as living in the New York Catholic Protectory. Also, another little side note, like I said before, the book has a lot more detail than I was able to put in here because it's going to be a long enough episode To where it's going to have to be two parts anyway, at least. Yeah. So I really highly suggest getting the book so you get all of that information. Anna had four out of five kids that were her own. It would have been five of her own, but one died a few months after birth. Her only son, John, was considered a troublemaker from a young age before Francis was even born. From age 11, John Crawley had a record of delinquencies. Some of these records are 19... 1909, New York Truant School, three months for truancy. 1910, New York Catholic Protectory, six months for truancy. 1911, New York Catholic Protectory, 14 months for assault. Oh, no. (laughs) September 1914, John Crawley and two others assaulted a man named Samuel Schiller. He was arrested and charged with assault in the second degree, but October 6th, he was allowed to enter a guilty plea allowing him to receive assault in the third degree. He served 14 months in New York Reformatory for that. And in 1916, he was in New York City Reformatory again for six months for burglary and a parole violation.
1: This is one of those cases where the system did not work.
0: No. And this is just his brother. This ain't even Francis. Yeah. January 25th, 1918, John Crawley was arrested for assault and released. April 14th, 1918, New York State Reformatory in Elmira, sentenced to five years, third degree burglary. May 20th, 1919, he was released from there. Also in 1919, the time he year he was released, he got arrested for burglary and was discharged.
1: Just like, go ahead and go back out there. There's no point in keeping you no more.
0: Yeah. And like I said, the book had the police reports for a lot of these also. I just didn't add those in.
1: Yeah, that'd be a lot of paperwork. Yes.
0: John Crawley was administered a series of examinations shortly after his admission in New York State Reformatory in Elmira, and the examinations revealed a bit about him and what he was capable of. May 31st, 1918, he was classified as psychopathic delinquent.
1: Uncontrollable delinquency.
0: Some things the mental summary said is, and these are quotes, this boy is a misfit. He's lived by gambling or stealing since learning school Went out of custody. Like all psychopaths, he is grossly lacking in judgment, foresight, and good sense. He has a weak character, has never learned to control his lower nature, is suggestible, a typical criminal with a hopeless prognosis, and he should be permanently segregated.
1: He's made some bad choices in life.
0: Yeah. Francis Crawley was at St. John's home until March 10th, 1920. I'm want to say that Anna got sick and so that he could have better care, she placed him there Mm -hmm. while she was sick. He was then enrolled in St. Jerome's school when he came back home, which is where his behavioral problems were first noticed. He hated school and immediately began to play hooky. They didn't tolerate this behavior and he was sent to St. Dominic's home where he spent three years before returning home. John Crawley became kind of a bad role model for Francis. March 27th, 1921, in Manhattan, a group of men, including John Crawley, shot and killed a man named James L. Hayes. The others in the group were arrested while John managed to slip away from the scene. December 13th, 1921, a bench warrant was issued for John Crawley on the charge of first-degree murder. But on December 29th, 1922, the eyewitnesses were the foundation of the case, and they couldn't be found. He got lucky. Yes. He got lucky quite a bit, considering all yeah. he's done. Causing the murder charges against John to be demissed. Dismissed. Dismissed.
1: Yeah. Demissed. <laughs> yeah.
0: Even though he got off on murder charges, he was sent to New York State Reformatory in Elmira for parole violation. May 20th, 1924, he left the New York State Reformatory for the last time.
1: Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Turned his life around. mm
0: mm-hmm. New York City police officer Maurice Harlow was on East 104th Street on 3rd Avenue on January 15, 1925. He saw a taxicab driving recklessly and immediately stopped the cab. He approached the cab and asked the driver to see his license. The driver was John Crawley. A heated argument between the two quickly became physical when Harlow attempted to arrest John. John grabbed the officer's nightstick and attacked him with it. Oh no. <laughs> Harlow was eventually able to get handcuffs on John, and John was taken to the 104th Street Police Precinct and booked on charges of drunken disorderly conduct. That
1: should have been precinct.
0: Precinct? Is that how's that?
1: Yeah, you've had to have heard that before.
0: (laughs) I have. He was thrown in jail that day. The next day, he was arraigned in Harlem court, and then he was released with a $5 fine. For beating a cop. With his own night's It's like
1: they forgot about the beating and just uh, charged him with the reckless driving.
0: Yeah, I, I would have definitely charged him for the beating.
1: The paperwork is probably lost or the cop went missing because it seems to be his luck.
0: February 21st, 1925, at about 10 p.m., John Crawley and his wife were at a birthday party at 18123rd Avenue in Manhattan. The party went on after midnight and neighbors eventually called police over the noise. Maurice Harlow was the officer to respond to the call.
1: Of course he was.
0: John Crawley immediately recognized him as the officer who arrested him. An argument began immediately between the two, and John and his wife left the party, but Harlow followed them. Moments later, gunshots were heard. More police arrived and found Officer Harlow lying on the sidewalk with his gun still in his hand. He was pronounced dead at the hospital from a bullet wound to the brain and skull. John Crawley was 15 feet from where Harlow was found with a revolver next to him. He had been hit in the abdomen by Harlow's gun. John was rushed to the hospital with Alice, his wife, as a witness. Alice said she didn't see the shooting, but she did confirm that John had been involved in a confrontation with Harlow.
1: Clearly, that would be kind of a coincidental otherwise.
0: Yeah. Fingerprints were taken from the revolver, obviously belonging to John Crawley. He would have been facing murder charges if he hadn't had died from the bullet wound on March 10th, 1925. At the time, Francis Crawley would have been about 13 years old. And it's thought that this may be a part of the reason Francis Crawley ended up hating cops and ended up the way he did.
1: I mean, was the guy good to his family and just hateful to everybody else?
0: Francis or John? Uh, I don't know about John.
1: I mean, he might have just been a troubled person for everybody but his family.
0: Maybe. I don't know. Well... If you're getting in that, into that kind of trouble, that's going to hurt your family. Yeah. So, Francis Crawley's behavior after John Crawley's death is where we're getting into now. While attending public school, 43, in the Bronx, Francis became a troublesome student. He was sent to the St. Michael's home in Staten Island, where he destroyed some of the property while there. Then he ran away back home to his mother, Anna. Authorities found him and brought him in front of a judge at the Children's Court in the Bronx for charges on the destruction of public property. He received a warning and was placed on probation. He was also ordered to undergo a psychiatric examination. Well, that seems reasonable. Yeah. Francis was sent to the clearing house for mental defectives. Don't know. That's the rudest (laughs) thing I've ever heard. Okay, maybe not the rudest thing I've ever heard, but there's got to be a better way to name this.
1: (laughs) What do you tell people when you've been there? (laughs) Oh my goodness. I would just say, I've been to hospital.
0: <laughs> the, to hospital. Mental
1: defectives.
0: <laughs> I didn't, I wanted to try to put it nicer, but I, I didn't know how. Oh no. If but it's that's the, what the book said. Yeah. So, sorry if that offends someone. Blame the book, not me. He was examined there by Dr. Max Schlapp. <laughs> the, I love that name. <laughs> Max Schlapp. At the time, Dr. Schlapp was one of the country's top mental health professionals.
1: And he worked at the... (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) How he named it? (laughs) Great professional behavior.
0: Oh. The examination results revealed that Francis was not insane. Schlapp reported that Crawley had violent tendencies, not short of murder. These findings were not followed up. They were not taken seriously. And... No helpful treatments. I mean, you have have to look at
1: the name of the guy who's on the report. So (laughs) this Matt slaps the guy, says.
0: (laughs) Oh, goodness. Francis Crawley got involved with street gangs while living in the Bronx about this time as well. He hung out with crowds that were older than him, where he was introduced to sex with both males and females at the age of 14. This was believed to be because he was only just over five feet tall and... That he had to try harder to earn respect from his peers, or so he believed.
1: Now, that's how he's going to earn respect.
0: <laughs> back in those days, maybe one of those, but not the I, other.
1: I know. That's what I was wondering. He, I guess he became everybody's friend.
0: Yeah. Apparently so.
1: A little bit short of murdering tendencies. Yeah. Surely they didn't. Should have been followed You don't think the doctor sure. is like doing, back then the doctor could have, this could have came up somehow, like, that he was by in the report. And that's why he was. Completely, what is the word? Defective? <laughs> oh. it, it, just verging on a murderer, perhaps, and that's why he's on the report.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is. Yeah, it's still the 1920s at this point. Yeah,
1: he was a, what they would have called back then a sexual deviant. Oh,
0: <laughs>
1: that's exactly what they the
0: roaring tra- twenties. And they
1: could have charged him. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have charged him in the twenties. I guess would they?
0: Yeah, I, think I mean, it was they illegal would. At they the would have,
1: but the all this stuff was overlooked because. Yeah. It was a mess the whole time back then. Just wait to the thirties though
0: <laughs> he was taught from these older crowds how to steal vehicles, and it's estimated that over five years he stole about forty vehicles. This wasn't only for profit. he also liked to pick up girls and impress them with by driving them around in these stolen vehicles.
1: so he liked girls. i don't I don't think get this dude this,
0: i I don't he liked girls more, I believe I don't know. Who knows?
1: They just mention it and carry on.
0: When he was finished with a car he had stolen, he would just abandon it and move on. May 3rd, 1929, Francis was arrested for stealing a vehicle owned by Michael M. Valentine.
1: These people. July 4th,
0: 1929, he stole a Chandler sedan with three other people, which led to him getting arrested. November 15th, 1929, he took a Nash Roadster.
1: He's after a lot of vehicles. He just wants them all. Yes.
0: He does. Crawley was arrested several times during these years for the theft of cars. Each time he went in front of a judge in the Bronx County Court, he walked away free. They, they let him go every time. Like his brother for a while.
1: Real popular amongst certain judges for some reason.
0: I think it was because he was so young.
1: Maybe. At the
0: time. I don't know. December 1930, he was tried and convict. I made a typo. I was almost about to say convinced. Convicted. <laughs> he was convicted, not convinced of anything. Judge Harry Stockwell issued a suspended sentence and placed Crawley on probation.
1: Oh, no. How young
0: is he? 1930. I want to say he was probably around 18 at that time.
1: Why are they taking it so easy on him?
0: I don't know. During this event, even though he was not sent to prison, it is said he was a victim of beatings from the police. I mean. Which was apparently common in those days. And I'm going back towards the book. They had a whole section of more detail about the forms of torture some police used to do to get a confession.
1: Maybe the judges thought they didn't have to sentence people to jail. The police would take care of it for them.
0: Apparently it didn't work.
1: No. He still had some bad habits. And, and
0: from what I read, John Crawley was not one to rat on his friends or the company he So they try
1: to beat it out of him? Yeah. Okay.
0: But he didn't give in, which I guess that could be it.
1: A- I mean, if you're intent on committing crimes, I guess, yeah.
0: Yeah. This is about the time he started carrying a gun and robbing people at gunpoint. He would target victims that would be less likely to report him to the police. At the time, being a homosexual was illegal, so he would target them. Also, because he knew they were less likely to report the crimes, he would also sometimes sexually assault them.
1: Of course he would. This guy's really messed up.
0: That's why I really had to go into it. He received the nickname Shorty, By the time he reached his 18th birthday... How tall was he? Uh, just a little over five feet. I don't know if he liked this name. I imagine he probably did not.
1: No, it sounds like you're in line to get a good murdering if you use it too often.
0: Francis hung around people who smoked, drank, and used drugs, but oddly enough, he did not participate in any of these. He did not drink at all. He didn't smoke. He he wouldn't do drugs. He just... All this stuff he did, he did it sober.
1: I don't understand this dude at all. They need to make a
0: movie about it. They him. really do. They might have. We need to look into that. Because I bet that would be a good movie. Summer of 1930, Francis Crawley lived in Laurelton, which was a short trip to the Long Island beaches, where he met a 15-year-old girl, Helen Walsh, while there.
1: And he wooed her with his excessive sobriety.
0: hmm Helen was born October 13, 1914, in New York. She lived in a downtown section of Brooklyn with her mother, Margaret Walsh, her father, Jeremiah, and her sister, Olive.
1: Olive Walsh? It's like Olive Walsh.
0: She was considered an attractive girl, and Francis fell in love with her quickly. Francis and Helen dated for several months before her 16th birthday, and at this point, he gave her a ring and asked her to marry him. She accepted, but only on the condition that he would change his ways. No
1: more robbing, raping, murdering, you know.
0: Pretty much. Stop breaking the law, asshole.
1: You should take up drinking, perhaps? Or <laughs> some uh, some cocaine or heroin or whatever we had back then? <laughs> cocaine. Oh. Maybe you could him some opium. Calm him down. I don't know. At this rate, you need something. <laughs>
0: He did make some effort to change his ways for a while and also began working for his brother-in-law. He still ended up getting in trouble and eventually Helen called off the engagement when she realized that his ways were never going to change.
1: He's just stuck in his ways.
0: Yeah. On February 21st, 1931 in the Bronx, a dance was being held at the Harry C. Wilson Post of the American Legion. Long name. Crawley and two of his friends crashed the dance when they became disruptive. Some men tried to escort them out, but Crawley pulled a gun out and shot two of them.
1: I'm going to this party one way or another. (laughs) I've recently found myself single.
0: Oh. Francis Crawley was identified as the shooter and police began to search for him. Knowing he would be sent to prison if caught, he wouldn't stay in one place for too long and he was always constantly moving.
1: Back then it was easier to hide places. Yeah. I mean, he could have just left the city.
0: He did. He could have. Or the state. Yeah. Better yet, but he didn't. He was on the run, but still needed a way to get money. So he went to a backroom dice game that was being held at a pharmacy in Manhattan. Of course. He had a companion with him and they robbed the game. They got $263.
1: I mean, back then that would have settled you for a while.
0: Yeah. While at the game, he shot and wounded one person. It said he shot at two. Maybe he didn't hit the other one. I don't
1: know. Well, because he was drunk.
0: hmm <laughs> Nobody at the game could identify who the shooter was, but a ballistics report on the bullet fired matched those from the American Legion shooting.
1: That's fascinating. At that time, they could do that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Detectives found clues in the search for Crawley that led them to the Lincoln Hotel in Manhattan. Crawley had been renting a room there, but by the time the detectives arrived, he had already moved on and was gone. Crawley continued to evade the police by constantly moving around. He went to an apartment on Broadway and West 126th Street, then to a furnished room on East 100th Street and First Avenue, and around mid-March, he ended up back on the west side at the Hudson Parkway Apartments. He always managed to move just before the detectives could catch him. There was also a few more places he had went, but I only added those. One detective found out where Crawley was employed and that he was employed by his brother-in-law. The detective went to ask Crawley's brother-in-law if he had any information as to where they could find him. He said that Crawley hadn't been to work in over three weeks, which would have been about the time of the American Legion shooting on February 21st. While the detective was there, who walks in the office? Francis Crawley himself.
1: Oh, he's in trouble now.
0: The detective immediately recognized him and drew his gun and put Francis against the wall. While searching him, the detective found a handgun. He holstered the gun and instructed Crawley to walk out of the office while he followed behind. Crawley then swung around at that time and pulled another gun that he had hidden in his sleeve. He shot three times and hit the detective twice before running away.
1: Of course. This guy's a menace. (laughs) Yeah.
0: While injured, the detective managed to make his way downstairs to the lobby of the building before calling in the alarm. Crawley knew the building well from working there. So he thought the detective had associates at the front entrance, so he went down to the sixth floor and jumped from a window with a short distance onto the roof of an apartment building next door, where he went down the stairs of the apartment building.
1: Yeah, he just escaped pretty much.
0: Just as police surrounded the building, Francis Two Gun Crawley was already gone. Yeah. Now, after this close call, March 15th, 1931, Francis Crawley went to stay with his new friend, Rudolf Derringer, and Ossining? Ossining? I don't know. Anyway, Rudolph was called Fats. That's what his nickname was. He was a hefty man.
1: He could have been very small. He wasn't in the
0: pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Rudolph Deranger Fats was born December 10th, 1905 in New York. He was an only child and he grew up in West Harlem. He worked as a delivery driver for a milk company and then became a bus driver. After befriending Crawley, Fats became the driver in three stick-ups with him.
1: That's not pay well, being a bus driver. March 15th,
0: 1931, the same day Crawley left New York City. Huguenot Bank. What is... I don't know. (laughs) Huguenot. (laughs) Huguenot. I don't know how to say it. It's spelled H-U-G-U-E-N-O-T. Bank. In New Rochelle, was robbed by four men.
1: Oh, wonder who it could have been.
0: Crawley was suspected, but no concrete evidence was found for police to issue an arrest for that particular crime. And Fats never gave any indication that he was involved in the robbery either.
1: Well, yeah.
0: <laughs> and if you keep him locked up once.
1: It's less it, likely to keep happening.
0: Yeah. Crawley went back to Manhattan after things had, had time to cool down. He stayed in a furnished room, then moved to a boarding house at, while Fats remained at his job with Meredith and Hitchcock in a sinning—I don't know how to pronounce that—Francis continued to look for victims to get cash and valuables. Rudolf Audler, Audler, a Hungarian man, some dude, was one of those victims. Oh, April 1922, three men entered Audler's home, and he was home alone. The three men had guns, and he resisted one of the robbers, which caused them to fire shots at him. His dog heard the gunshots and showed up and chased them away. Oh. Good doggie. Yeah. <laughs> he survived, but couldn't identify who his attackers were. It was found that bullets fired in his home came from the same gun Francis Crawley used on three prior occasions. Right. When it comes to the guns throughout this, they keep doing that. And that's how they find out. This section I'm calling about the time shit starts getting more dangerous and deadly. Mm. April 25th. A friend of Francis Crawley's named Robert LeClaire, he was actually the one who introduced Crawley to Fats. Robert and Francis took a ride to wherever that place is to pick up Fats.
1: On singing?
0: Uh, On singing. Along the way, they stopped by a woman named Millie's place to pick her up. Millie was Robert's 23-year-old girlfriend at the time. After picking up Fats, they headed back to the city. Also, another side note, there was a lot more places that they went. And I just didn't add it in because it didn't seem as relevant. But they had the whole list in the book of this whole time. Yeah. Fats wanted to go to the Primrose and Crawley went with him. Earlier that week, Crawley and Fats stole a green Chrysler sedan from a hospital's parking garage. And they switched the license plates with ones that was registered in Fats' name. His real name. Not Fats. This was the car they were driving. Fats would spend money... At clubs where men could purchase a ten cent ticket to get dances with one of the girls—that's
1: an interesting way to spend all your money. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're out of going bank. to
0: a strip club and just throwing doms at them, how offensive! Would they have
1: buckets all over the stage <laughs> instead of
0: oh, ten cents per ticket? You you just throw the ticket, at them, yeah, slip it in the bra. Oh,
1: <laughs>
0: oh, I'd be pissed. Here's a ticket. <laughs> Because he was considered an unattractive man and couldn't get anyone to just dance with him for free, apparently, is why he did this. Fats had a special interest in one particular dancer at the Primrose named Virginia Brannon. She went out with him a few times after her shift, and he would spend generous amounts of money on her. Crawley was still trying to get back with Helen at the time, and during this, he made an attempt to visit her. But when he arrived, she was not around. So he was disappointed. Classic. Sad. I Sorry, she's not home. At about 9.30 p.m., he dropped off Robert and Millie at her place while he took Fats to get liquor. The four of them met back up later and drove to Manhattan to eat at a restaurant across from the Primrose because Fats was hoping Virginia would want to hang out with him and his friends after she closed the club. After drinking more liquor, Robert, Millie, and Fats went inside the Primrose while Crawley stayed in the car because... He didn't drink, and he was upset that he didn't get to see Helen, yeah. so he didn't want to go inside and deal with all that.
1: This was like a Grand Theft Auto if it's made in the 30s <laughs> or 20s. The 20s. Yeah. They
0: should do that.
1: I think they, they kind of made one. It was called L.A. Noir.
0: Virginia joined the group at the table, but she refused to go out with them after her shift and told them that she had another date planned, which obviously upset Pats. Of course. She managed to calm him down by agreeing to go out with him the following night, though. Crawley then drove his friends to a speakeasy on Jerome Avenue in the Bronx. And by this time, it was early morning, so he left them there and went back to his apartment. They agreed to meet at the Primrose later that night. April 26, 1931, everyone in the group besides Crawley drank all afternoon. A little after 2 a.m., they arrived at the Primrose. Virginia met Fats out front when the club closed around 3 a.m., and around 9 a.m., Crawley was heading towards the Bronx to drop his friends off. Mm Mm-hmm. Millie and Robert were in the front seat and had fallen asleep. Fats was aggressively pawing at Virginia in the back seat. Virginia began resisting Fats' advances, which made him more aggressive the more she resisted. And she finally told him that she was in love with someone else and that she was engaged to be married. Well. Which made him a little more violent. At the time, they were on Jerome Avenue in the Bronx. While the car was stopped at a traffic light, Virginia tried to flee from the vehicle. And then Millie and Robert were awakened by the sound of gunshot. They saw Fats with a gun in his hand and Virginia with blood on her dress. What a mess. Now, the book didn't say this. When I was looking into it before online, some of them said he also raped her. But the book didn't say that, so I don't know.
1: It's hard to tell. It sounds like something he would do.
0: Yeah. He was already pawing at her. Yeah. So it's a possibility. Francis drove away as Virginia asked to be taken to the hospital. Instead, he drove toward the county line into Yonkers. (laughs) I'm not laughing about the fact he refused to take her to the hospital. I'm laughing about Yonkers. Oh, goodness. He dropped Robert and Millie off at a drugstore and told them to wait for him to pick them up later. Crawley then pulled the car over on Valentine Street near the walled St. Joseph's Seminary. Fats pulled Virginia's body from the car and tossed it behind the wall. Crawley noticed one of her shoes was still in the car, so Fats just tossed it aside as they drove away. Real respectful. April 27th, 1931, at about 10 a.m., a young man was walking St. Joseph's Catholic Seminary when he noticed a human hand sticking out from behind the wall. He approached a nearby meat truck driver and told him what he had found.
1: I'm just going to tell the local meat (laughs) truck driver he could take care of this.
0: Well, the driver went to the nearest police station to report it. I guess it's because he had a vehicle. Police Chief Edward J. Quirk and Lieutenant George A. Ford were in charge of the crime scene. Just before eleven a.m., a medical examiner examined the body and determined the time of death was just about an hour or two earlier, and that the cause of death was to be gunshot wound from a close range.
1: Yeah, that's um, exactly what it was. Yep, you did it, sir. Good job, or madam. I'm pretty sure it was a man. It was a man. Yeah, it was
0: a man. The detectives noticed a blood trail leading to the road, and when they followed it, they found tire tracks, which made it clear she was murdered in another location and that her body was brought to the seminary wall to be disposed of. She had nothing on her to be able to identify who she was, but she did have a piece of paper with the address 499 West 123rd Street. Quirk and Ford went to the address where it was found to be where she lived with her friend Gertrude. Gertrude almost fainted when the detectives showed her a picture of Virginia, but when she got a hold of herself, she told officers about how she and Virginia had left Maine and got jobs at the Primrose Dance Palace. I think they just wanted a more exciting life, somewhere better to live. Yeah, I mean, they... a
1: nickel a dance.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it was a dime.
1: Oh, yeah, a dime. <laughs> Sorry, I was short-changing them. <laughs>
0: The last time she saw Virginia was at about 3 a.m. when the club closed that morning. Gertrude told the detectives about a few of the men that Virginia spent time with. One was a sailor who went by the name of Bob.
1: Sailor Bob.
0: Yep, Sailor Bob. One was an older man who seemed to enjoy Virginia's company, but wouldn't spend money on her. For where she worked, I would not be giving you any of my time. Time is money. Therefore, you won't be getting my time if you're not giving me my money.
1: She might have just been friends with the dude. Who knows?
0: Yeah, maybe. A heavy-set man who seemed to really enjoy Virginia's company and spent generous amounts of money on her. She also mentioned a man named Harry Miller, which she said Virginia was planning to marry in the near future. Staff at the Primrose were questioned as well, but no one who worked there was considered a suspect. And the only reason I added that little bit of information is just because they were trying to do a good job. Mm-hmm. So they, they did that. The only complete name Gertrude gave the detectives was Harry Miller's. Rudy was the only other name that came up, but it wasn't the complete name. Harry Miller was found at his parents' home in the Bronx where he lived. He told detectives that he met Virginia on April 5th, and shortly after, she told him that her life was in danger. This was the reason that she wanted to marry him as soon as possible. It was never specified what caused Virginia's fear that her life was in danger, though. But I guess we can guess.
1: Yeah. We, we figured that part out for her.
0: She was not wrong. Harry claimed that Virginia tried to call him at around 7.30 on the day of her murder. He wasn't home at the time, but she left a message saying she needed to see him right away. They didn't consider Harry a suspect in this case.
1: That's probably good because he wasn't.
0: One theory behind Virginia's murder came from the recent murder of a woman named Vivian Gordon. Vivian's body was found in Van Cortland Park in the Bronx on February 26, 1931. And the clues to Vivian's murder led detectives to believe she was involved with criminals that wanted her dead, which made them think maybe Virginia may have been involved with criminals that wanted her dead as well. Everyone who was questioned that knew Virginia gave no indication that she would associate with anyone like that, though.
1: Well, she sort of did.
0: In a way, April 29th, New York Police Lieutenant William Brass Beresford was with three other detectives stopped at a traffic light. They were near the Morris Avenue Bridge in the Bronx. They noticed the green Chrysler sedan stopped next to them. And when Lieutenant William noticed Francis Crawley in the passenger seat of the Chrysler sedan, he yelled at the bigger guy driving to pull over. Instead, the bigger guy sped off.
1: Everybody in the car is wanted, pretty much, I'm guessing, so...
0: Yeah, at least two. And
1: they're going to all be wanted well, here to a one,
0: I don't think they know that who killed Virginia at this point, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I can understand. Crawley fired at the police car with a gun in each hand. Cops, in return, shot at the sedan while chasing it, and they were not able to catch them. They pulled the slugs from the car, and they matched the gun that Crawley used in previous shootings. April 30th on 288 East 155th Street in the Bronx, patrolman Michael Keyes noticed a green Chrysler with bullet holes in the windows.
1: It looks like they'd have been shattered windows instead of just bullet holes.
0: Maybe they had better windows back then. The doors were unlocked, so he t- took it upon himself to search the inside of the vehicle. I don't think it's lawful behavior. I don't know about in that time, but <laughs> now I don't believe that's acceptable. What he found was bloodstains on the back seat, mm-hmm. blankets on the floor marked "Ascending hospital ambulance. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but I, I honestly don't have any idea how to. Also, these blankets were bloodstained. A twenty-two caliber Stevens rifle was under the blankets with the serial number H535.
1: Serial numbers were so small then.
0: (laughs) Four casings of discharged thirty-eight caliber bullets. A set of license plates with the number 3V51-42 was located under the front seat. The plates on the car had the number 6V19-04.
1: It belonged to what's-his-name, didn't it?
0: The ones on the car matched yeah. paths, which really, if you think about it, they should have taken those other license plates out Just of the way, along with all the bloodstained blankets at least, and try to clean up the bloodstains on the car. Come on. Detectives William C. Mara and Dominic Caso were assigned the investigation when the findings were reported. They found that the license plates under the seat were registered to the Chrysler, which had been reported stolen from the hospital garage. The plates attached were registered to a Ford belonging to Rudolph Derringer. Derringer. Mr. Fats. Yep, Fats. When the detectives went to Fats' address, he was not there. His aunt, who he was living with, told them he had left the house about four days before and hadn't been back. When they went to his job, they found out he had quit two days earlier. They found no prior criminal record on Fats, though they were certain he was involved with stealing the car.
1: Uh It would make sense if he didn't report his own tags missing. No. He should have reported his tags missing.
0: Yeah. Mara realized Virginia Brandon's murder case had a suspect by the name of Rudy, and when he realized Rudy could be short for Rudolph, he went to the Yonkers Police Department. After the clues were examined, the detectives were able to match the tire treads found near Virginia's body to the Chrysler sedan. And this along with the blood stains and the blankets that also had blood stains Confirmed the car was used in the murder of Virginia. Detective Mara found Fat's mother, Miss Anna Derringer, Derringer in a West Harlem apartment. She told detectives that he had moved in with his aunt in austin months earlier and hadn't visited recently. She also mentioned his friend living in the Bronx, Robert LeClaire. They didn't find Robert at his home when they went there, but they found out. That he worked where Crawley used to work when Crawley was employed by his brother-in-law. Yeah. So they went there for information.
1: I take back up. That place seems to be an unlucky spot for cops.
0: They found out that LeClaire was working on the Hayden Planetarium. And so Mara contacted Chief Work (laughs) with the Yonkers police and they met at the construction site. LeClaire was found and brought in for questioning.
1: Yonkers? is in the book world war z it's where the u.s military made a big stand of all our modern technology against the zombie hordes of new york that had wandered through and they failed because they brought things that were meant to use shrapnel to just rip people apart but that didn't work on zombies it worked on a human they also tried different gases and things like that didn't work tanks kind of got covered in all kinds of zombies it was a big mess and then during the pandemic, Yonkers had a big outbreak, one of the major outbreaks of the New York region. And I was like, oh, look, Yonkers again. I keep this could keep coming up to be such a
0: Yonkers.
1: suburb kind of area. <laughs> Yonkers. I like
0: the name Yonkers. Yeah. But also, if you haven't noticed, how in the world is it that I keep picking these stories or these cases for episodes with names that I can never pronounce?
1: I can never pronounce names either. Some of them I just heard before.
0: Mm. LeClaire's version of the events that led to Virginia's murder began the day of April 25th, 1931. Francis Crawley invited him out, and they picked up Mildred Moore, also mm. known as Millie. Mildred. Mildred. Then they drove to pick up fats and returned to the city for the night. Early Monday morning, April 27th, 1931, LeClaire said Virginia seemed comfortable with fats. But as the night went on, and they were more, more drunk... She started to turn cold towards him. He told detectives that it was clear Fats was getting frustrated with her for refusing his advances. Because he's a big old pig. A handsy one. He and Millie fell asleep in the front seat of the car. Then they were woken up suddenly by the sound of gunshots. He told them what happened until they were dropped off at Millie's place later that morning. When asked what make of car they were in, he answered a green Chrysler sedan. He told them that just before they were dropped off, Crawley told fats to give him the gun so he could clean it oh the ballistics report indicated the gun used to kill virginia was the same gun used by crawley in the prior shootings so detective mara believed crawley gave fats the gun that was used to kill virginia
1: might as well just put it to good use again
0: when mildred moore found out leclaire her boyfriend had been brought in for questioning she began to get nervous she went to see his mother miss mary leclaire millie told her everything that had happened. So, Miss LeClaire, Mrs. LeClaire, took Millie to the Church of St. Margaret in the Bronx to talk to Father McCaffrey, where he told them that they should go to the police, and he offered to go with them. The next day, they all went to the police station, and Millie told her version of what happened, which was...
1: A lot of bad stuff.
0: Well, yes, but it matched what LeClaire had told them, with the exception that Frances Crawley had been introduced to her as Tommy Jordan. Both confessions made it clear the murder of Virginia took place in the Bronx and not in Yonkers, where the body f- was found. This meant the case was under Bronx County's jurisdiction instead of Yonkers. When shown mugshot photos, Millie pointed out Crawley's photo as the person she knew as Tommy Jordan. Detectives were having no luck finding Fats, so they put more effort into finding Crawley.
1: He did seem to be the more dangerous person. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, well, a- yeah, he has shot a few people, but has not murdered anyone at this point. Yeah. Fats is the only one that's murdered somebody at this point. Detectives were having no luck finding Fats, so they put more effort into finding Crawley. LeClaire had given the detectives the address that Crawley had stopped to change clothes at during the time they were hanging out. When they got there, they asked the owner of the building about a Tommy Jordan and showed a picture of Crawley. The owner recognized him as a boarder who rented a room for a short time under the name Duffy. Some of the information he gave about Duffy was he had a woman named Billy Dunn who often stayed with him, as well as a heavyset man who often would visit.
1: Ah, wonder who that could have been. Mm-hmm.
0: Wanted flyers were distributed, warning that Crawley was armed and dangerous. While the multi-state alert was sent out for Francis Crawley, he had Billy Dunn rent an apartment for them at 303 West 90th Street, and it was a top floor apartment. Two-Gun Crawley was still in love with Helen, even though he was going pretty steady with Billy. <laughs> he found out Helen was supposed to be on Long Island to visit her father. He was determined to go there and win her back. So on May 4th, a little after midnight, Fats and Crawley went to a parking garage in Manhattan. They came across an attendant named Jimmy Linton, and Crawley pulled a gun on Linton within a few minutes and stole a maroon Ford. They forced Linton into the car to try to buy them more time before he could report the theft, and they left him on the corner of West 15th Street and 9th Avenue, where there was no phone nearby.
1: He's lucky, considering how everybody else... Everybody
0: else is going, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's definitely luckier. Crawley pulled over and had a set of clean license plates ready to switch. They then went to the apartment rented by Billy, and on May 5th, 1931, around 2 p.m., Crawley put on a nice suit and left the apartment. He drove to Long Island to find Hilland. While driving through Queens, he was forced to make a short stop on a traffic light to avoid an accident. The bus behind him ended up hitting the Ford in the back.
1: His luck is running out.
0: Yeah. Because he was wanted and his picture was being passed around, he acted natural and just shrugged it off and acted as if everything was fine. It was no big deal when a bus driver and a traffic cop walked over. He told them not to worry about it, and the officer went back to doing his job. He didn't recognize him apparently
1: i mean i can't recognize people well i'm, I'm bad I, about faces yeah i
0: probably wouldn't have noticed either about 5 p.m francis was on washington avenue when he saw helen in a parked car with two of his friends johnny mccall johnny mcca i guess mccahill and clinton davis crawley joined them in the car and clinton invited them all to his house That's where Francis started showing off his guns. He had three total, two on him and one that he left in a bag with extra ammunition. Because Crawley was in the newspapers, the conversation ended up turning to Virginia's murder. He gave no information on that topic, but he did brag about shooting Detective Shadell and escaping.
1: Great friends you got there. Yeah.
0: Helen was expected to meet her father for dinner, so they all separated at that point and arranged to meet a few hours later. And around 8 p.m. they all met back up with another friend called Salvatore Russo. They all hopped in Crawley's stolen Ford and drove off. Davis was driving, Russo was in the passenger seat, and Crawley, Helen, and Mega Hill sat in the back seat. They parked at a dead-end road on Morris Lane after driving for hours. And This was kind of like a lover's lane where teens would go to make out. Russo found Crawley's bag with the spare gun and ammunition, and he asked if he could borrow it, and Crawley agreed. Crawley then told the guys to take a walk so he could have alone time with Helen. They agreed and walked away. Patrolman Fred Hirsch and Peter J. Yotis had a report come in that some boys had stolen a couple of tires. When they saw three boys walking down Washington Avenue, they stopped them to ask questions. Mickahill, Russo, and Davis answered the questions, and the officers decided they were not involved in the theft of the tires and drove away.
1: I mean, they weren't.
0: No. As far as I know, they weren't. <laughs> the
1: one thing that we know of that they probably didn't do.
0: May 6, 1931, a little after midnight, two patrolmen noticed a car parked on Morris Lane and decided to check it out. They beamed their headlights on the car, and as soon as the lights hit the car, Crawley moved into the driver's seat. When they asked Crawley his name, he answered Tommy Jordan, who was staying with his friend Johnny Mickahill. Helen answered that her name was Helen Mickahill and said that she was Johnny's sister, but obviously we know her name is Helen Walsh, and she was not his sister. The patrolman did not recognize Francis even though his picture was being passed around the area. It was dark and he was wearing a hat.
1: A really good hat.
0: So Officer Yotis asked him to take, take his hat off so he could get a better look at him. And Crawley complied. Yotis was satisfied and told him to go home. Patrolman Hirsch, however, decided to walk up back up to them and ask for Crawley's license. Crawley pretended to reach for it and grabbed a gun instead. He then fired at Hirsch, causing the officer to fall against the car. Once he emptied both of his handguns, Crawley took Hirsch's pistol and shot him two more times. Yodas heard the gunshots and tried to move towards some bushes, slipping and falling in the process. He unloaded several shots from the ground, and as he was reloading, Crawley sped away, and Hirsch was dead. Crawley drove back through Nassau County into Queens. He tried to get Helen to leave, but she refused and wanted to stay with him.
1: Oh, wow. He really picked a good one.
0: Oh, yeah. He abandoned the Ford when he got to the Jamaica section of the Queens.
1: This sounds like they just went to the Bahamas.
0: It, yes, it does. He took Helen to Manhattan in a taxicab, And by this time, an all-out alert was issued by Nassau County Police for Crawley. He decided to take Helen to the apartment that Billy was renting. Oh, no. Yeah. Good choice. Great man right there. Taking your ex girl that you are currently pretty much getting back together with to your new girl's apartment that she is renting for you to be able to hide in with her. Looks like Helen
1: would have just distance herself from this guy. What? Well Did she was she up to no good as well? I can't remember.
0: It didn't say if she was doing anything like Crawley was doing, but she wasn't also going and Yeah. She, she was helping him hide pretty much, so He told Helen he lived there with both Rudy, which is Fats, and Billy, and he convinced her that Billy meant nothing to him, which apparently seemed true considering he's bringing Helen to the apartment that she's renting for
1: Obviously,
0: When they arrived at the apartment, only Fats was there. Billy was not. He heard on the radio about how Crawley had killed the officer, and Helen met Fats for the first time. Before then, she only knew him as the man that killed Virginia Brandon. Hi, I hear you're a murderer to a woman. How you doing? No, I'm going to remove two of you. (laughs) At about 4 p.m., Billy returned to the apartment. She heard about Crawley killing the cops, and that made her nervous about him being there, simply for that. Then she was really pissed that he showed up with another girl. She let her objections be known, but Crawley told her that that's how it's going to be and that she had better play along. Get the hell out of my apartment.
1: (laughs) Oh, y'all. Yeah, I'd have walked straight out and called the cops and be like, hey, these people have lied to me about everything going on, and they are wanted people.
0: And they're in my home. I'm pretty sure this
1: broad up here has killed three people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I watched your- <laughs> oh. After arguing, they all went to sleep while police was searching for Francis Two-Gun Crawley with orders to capture him dead or alive. Police found the abandoned Ford in Jamaica. They found bloodstains inside the vehicle and on the running board, Two bullets in the car door were confirmed to be fired from the same gun Crawley used in the past. And there was also a speculation that Crawley may have killed Helen as well because she witnessed the murder. Oh. Newspapers actually reported that he had killed her, even though we know he did not. May 6, 1931, the newspaper came out reporting Crawley was wanted for the murder of patrolman Fred Hirsch. Helen saw the papers and was worried her family would believe that she was actually dead. (laughs) <laughs> so Francis told her to write a letter to her mother and sister and then when he thought it was safe, he was going to go out and mail them.
1: What have they been eating?
0: I imagine Billy had groceries that they were using. Ooh. I I feel bad for Billy.
1: I mean, she knew what she's getting into. Yeah.
0: Well, at the time, I feel bad for Billy. According to a column in the Brooklyn Daily News, Helen's letter to her mother said that she was all right and not to worry. In the letter, she said that they were married that day and that Crawley was taking her to Canada that night. It actually had what was written, but I didn't feel like writing all of it, so I just broke it down into my own. Crawley said he took a subway to mail the letters, but it's more likely that he dropped them off in a nearby mailbox, picking up more (laughs) newspapers while he was out. Helen later said Crawley had read all of the news to him because he was illiterate, Billy Dunn began talking to a newspaper reporter called Joe O'Connor.
1: Go to the newspapers, not the cops.
0: Obviously, she was not happy sharing her apartment with Helen. I wouldn't be either. Crawley told her to tell the reporter if he wanted the story he needed to pay cash for it. He also wanted to make it clear that he was not going to surrender and that nobody could reveal his location. So Billy met the reporter at a speakeasy, and Joe O'Connor agreed to pay to get the story so what does Billy do? She gives him the address to the apartment that Crawley is hiding out in.
1: Smart woman. He can never go back, though. <laughs> May 7th,
0: 1931, Billy left the apartment while Fats, Helen, and Crawley stayed behind. She saw his Francis Crawley's picture on all of the newspapers. The New York Daily News headline read, Dead or Alive Traps Set at 18,000 Hunt Crawley. New York City wanted him for the attempted murder of Detective... Shadell, and Yonkers wanted him for being a suspect in Virginia Brandon's murder. After the murder of patrolman Fred Hirsch, the two jurisdictions teamed up with Nassau County in the hunt for two-gun Crawley. which in a lot of cases, the jurisdictions, they will not work together. They will do everything in their power to not work together for some reason.
1: It's been that way for a while until recently.
0: Yeah, but in this one, they decided to work together. So good for them. Helen's mother, Margaret Walsh, didn't believe her daughter was killed. In her opinion of Francis was that he would never harm her daughter. Reporters began coming to her home. So Helen's sister, Olive, would answer the door and say, On your way, we won't talk to anyone, especially reporters and their dirty, rotten scandal sheets. Oh, no. And that's where I'm going to have to stop. And there will be a part two after I do a different episode. I'm sorry it turned out that way. It's a long story and there was more to go into.
1: And the reason we have to skip one and put another episode in between is because yep. we have a guest scheduled for the next yeah. next week. So
0: it's just how the schedule turned out. Yeah. And I didn't realize how long this was gonna be.
1: Beth, tell us where we can find your socials.
0: You can email me at horrifichistory.hauntings at gmail.com. I also have a Pinterest where I save. A lot of information. It's also a little bit of inspiration on where to get my episodes. But there's still some interesting information in my saved section of my boards on Pinterest. It is also horrific history and hauntings.
1: Yes, and I have a Twitter account set up for Gruesome Gaming G. Gruesome Gaming Group is the network that is all of our podcasts are on. We have two other podcasts. uh One is called uh, Leveling Duo. It's a podcast where my friend Dakota and I talk about video games we grew up with and have been playing over the years how much we enjoy him. Me and Beth have another podcast about uh, me telling her about different tabletop role-playing games and the settings in them and seeing if she'd like to play them at the end or something. It's called Brother Knows Quest. You can find all those, the link in the description of this episode from the website. You'll be able to click on whatever podcast's homepage you want to go to. You could find everything there, including a, a spot to send us tips for each episode. If you want to do that, we'd appreciate it. You don't have to.
0: And don't forget, I highly suggest you all go check out that book. There is so much more information. So it would have been like five <laughs> parts yeah. if I would have put it all. I'll and be- the pictures are amazing. There's and you get to see this one particular picture of how many police are in this. You yeah. get to they even have a picture of Virginia's body and you could see the bullet hole. Oh, golly. Yeah. Lots of uh, adult yeah, yeah, pictures that you should go look at.
1: I'll put the affiliate link for Amazon in there. It's also on Kindle Unlimited if you don't want to have to actually pay for it. But the the link will take you to the paperback and then you can just choose Kindle Unlimited or whatever from there. That'll be all for this week. Next week will be a whole other subject. And the week after that, we'll continue with this one. Thank you for listening.